From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Sebastian Salik. And a very good afternoon. I'm Roger Hearing. We now know who the new leader of the Lib Dems is. It's Ed Davig. We're talking a lot about that. But first, let's look at the other stories around. Boris Johnson's trying again to wrestle back the narrative on education, which has been marked by chaos in recent weeks. The PM's forced out Britain's top education civil servant, Jonathan Slater, who'd been in his post for four years, saying the department needs fresh leadership. And his removal, of course, follows the resignation earlier this week of the head of England's exams regulator, Sally Collier. Yeah, quite a nuanced story, the whole Jonathan Slater saga. Perhaps a little bit more to it than meets the eye, so is being suggested uh, through some of the papers today. So have a look through that. Meanwhile, government officials deciding today whether more areas of the country have to be put into lockdown. That's after Birmingham was placed on the government watch list. But to help alleviate financial worries, those who have the virus and their contacts are going to be paid a little bit to quarantine themselves. Yes, £13 doesn't sound a great deal, does it? But uh, I suppose for people who have not much, it's always going to help. Meanwhile, the government's announced those in England will be eligible for that £13 from the 1st of September. Health Secretary Matt Hancock says it's for people claiming benefits, such as universal credit, it's going to be available for anyone who's struggling. If somebody is working or seeking work, they are eligible to go on universal credit. And so I think that's a very reasonable way of determining those who are on low incomes to target these payments towards. So that's a, that's a really important principle of the whole support system we have. But then let's get on to the big news of the day, which we've had in the last hour here. Ed Davey being named the new leader of the Liberal Democrats, the fourth leader the party's had in five years. Jo Swinson, of course, losing her seat in the December election, which saw the Lib Dems shrink to just 11 MPs. So for more on all of this, we're pleased to be joined by Christine Jardine, Liberal Democrat MP for Edinburgh West and the party's Home Affairs spokesperson. Christine, got to get your take on Ed Davey as a choice. Another white man with links to the Cameron era. It doesn't really look like moving forward. Well, you know, you can take a negative view or you can look at what has actually happened today. And that is that we have chosen a new leader with the dynamic vision and leadership skills to take us forward. And that's what we should be focusing on. He's been talking about how... The party needs to listen to people, needs to listen to the voters, and how he wants to understand how the party can be more relevant to the people. We accept that we've had three bad election results in a row. We'd be, be mad not to. But that's what we should be focusing on now. What is it that the British public want from us? 
what is it that the voters need us to be doing? And, you know, how do we rebuild the belief in the Liberal Democrats that 10 years ago, going into the coalition, we had? Yeah, but Christine, you've, you've dropped the ball in all this because the British people aren't listening. They don't care. You've been at this game, this, this re-elect, this getting a leader, it seems to many people, since the late 14th century. And you've missed a vital period when Labour, under their new leader, has been making up a lot of ground. So, I mean, overall, that's the oh, big mistake, isn't it? No. I mean, really, you just made a You know, I remember jokes about how long the Labour leadership was taking when the Labour leadership was on. People were talking about, you know, Busted's new song being, a, being to the year 3000 and Labour leadership still going on. Come on, let's be real. It takes a while to make sure that you make the right choice. And that's what we were doing and that's what the Labour Party were doing. These are important positions for the country. We want someone in that role who has the leadership, the experience, the vision, the dynamism to offer the British people what the British people deserve. And that's why I make no apologies for us making sure that we took the time to get this right, to get someone who has those skills and who will prove in the future, because that's what's important to the British people. How we handle the crisis we've got now, how we rebuild the economy, how we rebuild society, and we look at how we improve to make sure that if we have to face this again, we're ready for it. And the government behaves better than this government has. That's what's important. But, Christine, the question is, what is new? I make no apologies for making the time. I make make no apologies for taking the time to make sure we get the right person. Christine, this has been happening. This has been being said since 2015, since the end of the coalition era. And since then, the Lib Dems have floated between eight and 12 MPs through three different general elections. What is the epiphany now that suddenly meant that you have the answers that you've been looking for for all this time? That's exactly the point. We're not saying we've got the answers. What we're saying is we want to know what the British people think the answer is. Ed has talked today already about getting out, getting around the country and listening to what people are saying from the tip of Shetland to the southern tip of Cornwall. He's going to be listening to what people want because that's what's wrong, not with the Liberal Democrats, but with British politics. Politicians need to listen more. Now, you also shouldn't stay wrapped in, you know, this, you know, cocoon of, you know, what happened in 2010, what happened in 1997. What is important now is what happens in 2020 and 21, 2, 3, 4 going forward. It's the future that counts, what people want in the future. And that's what we need to be looking to. That's what we need to be building on. And that's where we have to, to build, again, that belief in the Liberal Democrats that or, we are or, listening or, to what people or, want. Christine, that, so what's going to change? I mean, just for example, Brexit, you backed the wrong horse. Uh, what's going to change in terms of your attitude towards Britain's relations with the EU? See, that's what's wrong. Expressions like backing the wrong horse. We didn't back the wrong horse. We stood up for what we believed in. And did we go down in flames fighting for it? Yes, we did. But it was what, you know, a vast section of the British public wanted. We talked a lot about the 17 million. Well, what about the 16 million? that needed a voice. We gave them that voice and we campaigned. And did we lose it in the end? Are we leaving? Yes, we are. But we stood up for what we believe in. And I think that's what people want from the politicians. They don't want people who jump on populist bandwagons and say what is convenient. We said what we believed in and we stood up for it. Now, there is a place in the Liberal Democrats for people who believe that Brexit was the right thing to do. We never said that there wasn't a place for them. But we were the party of Remain. Now we want to move on 
and rebuild. We've got difficulty ahead. And what we want to build is a caring society. We need a green recovery from this. And, you know, it's the future that's important. And we will now work to make the best of what is a bad deal for Britain, get the best out of it we possibly can. But how does that sit with your what you were saying a moment ago about listening to the people. If you go out there and listen to people and they tell you that they want Brexit, which they probably will, the support is still there, and you do the opposite, it doesn't make sense. No, no, no. we were listening to the 16 million people who voted to say, who wanted the option to have the final say on the deal. That was what we were saying. And we said 17 times we asked Parliament to do that. But you know what? That's the past. Brexit will happen on the 31st of December. The government has refused a, a longer transition period. So what we will do is we will work to make sure that we listen to what people want in the future, that we move forward in the way that people want us to move forward, and that we tackle the issues that are important to people. And as far as Brexit is concerned, we will do our utmost to make sure that the people of Britain get the best they can out of it. Yeah, but where where are you going to be on the political spectrum? Because the whole problem with the delay in the process is Keir Starmer's stolen your clothes. The the moderate party now, as far as most people are concerned, is the Labour Party. You've lost your reason for existence. No, the Labour Party is the Labour Party. And the Conservative Party is the Conservative Party. The Labour Party still has a large left wing. The Conservative Party has moved to the right. Our position is where it has always been. We are the Liberal Party the Liberal Democrat Party in British politics, who actually research tells us that they may not vote for us yet, but 67% of people believe in our basic fundamental views, which are in the centre ground of British politics. Although, to be honest, I hate all this talk of left, right and centre, because it's people. What people want is what matters. Now, that shouldn't be a right thing or a left thing. That should be your basic principle. What is important to people? How do we make people's lives better? How do we improve society? How do we protect the planet? How do we protect the climate? What do we do that is best for people? That's what should be driving us, not what is the centre ground thing to do. It should be people that are at the centre of it. Okay, got to get your thoughts on some uh, some other issues while we've got a bit of time with you. What about the, the, sure. the masks in schools issue that's been floating about this week? Do, do we make that a requirement? I think what we do is we follow the scientific evidence. What are the World Health Organisation saying? What is the evidence? If the evidence is that it's the best thing to do, then we should listen to that evidence. If there's no evidence, that's a, that's a difficult issue. But if the evidence is telling us to do something to protect people, to help them get on, then... I'm a firm believer that that is what we do. We follow the evidence. The problem with that, Christine, is who do you listen to? Because many times the World Health Organization has been at odds with our own government scientists. There has to be some arbiter if you're going to make a rule like that. See that again, sorry? So, so what I'm saying is many times the World Health Organization has been at odds with our own government scientists. So who is the ultimate arbiter? Scientific advice develops, and it has been developing throughout this. And what we have found is that we have moved, our government scientific advisors have moved um, as well. If if you think about it, um, at the start of this, the government wasn't talking about lockdown, and then they moved to talking about lockdown. The government wasn't talking about face masks, then they moved to face masks. Boris Johnson um, wasn't a fan of them, now he is. You follow the developing scientific evidence. And, you know, we have to make sure, apart from anything else, that our children are protected in school and that we do the best thing for them. If there is any doubt about what we do, whether we follow less strict evidence or strict evidence, 
you know what, as a parent, I would want to follow the strict evidence because I would want to be sure that my child was protected. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics. Yes, first let's start with TikTok. Now, Boris Johnson's top advisers, it seems, may impose restrictions on the TikTok app's activities in the UK. But it's likely to stop short of blocking plans for the firm to set up an international headquarters in London. Now, sources say the government is likely to decide the app doesn't pose as big a security threat as Huawei, but it may still stop TikTok moving user data out of the country. Yeah, and we had the uh, CEO going as well. So it's a very nuanced story, that one. Turning to another Bloomberg scoop, a source saying that Chancellor Rishi Sunak's ETH out to help out scheme could cost more than £500 million initially estimated by the Treasury. So going over budget, statistics released on Tuesday showed that 64 million claims totaling £336 million had been made in the first three weeks of the programme. And officials said that's because of a lag in restaurants applying for funding and the eventual sum could exceed the Treasury's estimate from July. Remember yesterday we talked about uh, certain people calling for this to be extended. So this doesn't put a very good case forward for that. But also we're seeing that lots of restaurants want to continue off their own back, filling up those coffers before the more difficult winter months when sitting outside and that sort of thing isn't quite as straightforward. Indeed. Well, meanwhile, we, there's rarely a program goes by where we can't mention Brexit at all. And in this instance, it's Germany because they've scrapped plans for EU Brexit talks because, quote, there's been no progress in discussions and Boris Johnson doesn't understand how negotiations work. Speaking to the Daily Mail, EU officials believe Britain is prepared to risk an odium exit when the transition period comes to an end on December the 31st and will try to pin the blame on Brussels. The German government, which currently holds the rotating presidency of the EU Council, had intended to discuss Brexit during the meeting next week, but that's now been dropped. And sticking to Brexit, one for the Michel Barnier superfans. He is giving thought to writing a book about the whole affair. He's told a business conference that he doesn't just want to tell how they've handled the consequences of Brexit, but also why they need to take time to look into the lessons. Some very EU speak there, if I don't say so myself. Uh, He said he's kept notes during the four years of negotiations and is probably going to start writing next year when all of this has blown over. Yes, it could be a racy read, and uh, I rather like the um, the line suggested by one of our producers, Max Ramsey, that the strap line should be fine wine, fights and fishing rights. That sounds like the kind of thing that would make me buy it. Right, let's talk about other sorts of political memoirs, because the job of the SPAD, as they're known, is often shrouded in mystique. If they end up in the limelight, it's probably not, good, not for a good reason. Television programmes like Yes Minister and The Thick of It, of course, have only added to the intrigue about their role. Are they the secret power wielders, the lowly bag carriers, or something else entirely? Well, joining us now is Peter Cardwell, former SPAD and author of The Secret Life of Special Advisors. Now, he spent three and a half years working as a senior ministerial aide in the Home Office, Housing, Justice and Northern Ireland departments. So welcome to the programme, Peter. Um, OK, what's it like, the life of a SPAD? 
Uh, well, first of all, thanks very much for having me on. Um, it's a crazy life. It's all-consuming. It's fascinating. It's sometimes frustrating, uh, but it's absolutely brilliant. You're you're in the room when stuff happens, and you get to either make decisions or advise uh, very senior people to make decisions about how the country is run. Um, I've been a sort of political junkie my entire life. I've watched. Yes, I'm sure I've watched the thick of it. Sometimes it's a bit more like one, a bit more like the other. We used to say down the pub at the end of the week, you know, did you have a thick of it week or a West Wing week? Um, and sometimes you, it, was a, it was a bit more one than the other. Uh, but it was, it was a fantastic, uh, very privileged life that I had for three and a half years um, in four different departments working for four cabinet ministers. So I was very, very grateful for the experience. And now I've uh, written a book about it, uh, The Secret Life of Special Advisors, which is out on the 13th of October. I feel like it's the sort of job that really does uh, fulfil the cliche that no day ever looks the same. Oh, completely. Um, I mean, you can be, as I say in the book, you know, you can be, um, you know, looking at a policy for hundreds of millions of pounds and then, you know, somebody rings on one occasion, my boss's wife rang me to ask uh, whether it was all right to wear jeans for a photo shoot the next day they were having with a national newspaper, whether she should dress a bit smarter because it was quite a sort of middle middle uh, middle uh, middle class newspaper. So, yeah, it, it, it's really weird. I mean, you, you do occasionally go from the sublime to the ridiculous. Uh, I worked with James Brokenshire for uh, a, 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 most of my uh, time as a special advisor at both the Northern Ireland office and uh, when he was minister of, uh, when he was secretary of state, sorry, for housing. And uh, I mean, we, we had this sort of massive announcement on uh, on a domestic abuse fund in regard to local government. Very important announcement: ninety-two million pounds uh, of money. Um, and then it was completely overtaken by the fact that he had four ovens in his house. There was a photograph of him. Uh, he has he has sort of multiple ovens in his in his uh, kitchen. And we've done this uh, sort of at home kind of interview. Uh, and nobody remembers anything he said in the interview. Uh, he spoke very movingly about all sorts of things to do with his family and all the rest of it. But uh, they remember that he has sort of multiple ovens. And that, I promise you, I dealt with that story as his media special advisor for, for eight days. Yeah, the ovens seem to figure large in this. I seem to remember David Cameron and, and Ed Miliband all got criticised for the size and shape of their kitchen. Seems to be something British uh, people seem to be obsessed with. But let me ask you about perhaps the man most famous in the SPAD realm, certainly at the moment, and that's Dominic Cummings. Uh, have you encountered him? What's he like? Yes, I worked with Dominic for about six months. and he, I saw him for at least one meeting a week, if not more. Uh, we worked together very closely on the response to... Uh, one of the terror attacks, the Streatham terror attack, uh, and uh, we, we, you know, we have numerous meetings and conversations and so on. Uh, obviously, he's at the very top of the tree, the, uh, the most senior advisor to Boris Johnson, his effective chief of staff, and he's a very formidable, um, direct, and uh, I think he's a strategic genius. I and mean, he was, it was funny actually. We were, we were, I'd come through the May administration three years, the last. Six or eight months or so, which was was really difficult. And you know, if you think it looked chaotic on the on the outside, you should you should read my book and see what it was like on the inside. But uh, it's uh, it was you know we got to the end of that. Dominic took over uh, when Boris Johnson came in as the sort of chief spad and said, you know, uh, in the first meeting I was in with him, he said, we're going to in the next few months we're going to get three things done. We're going to get Brexit done. We're going to uh, have an election and we're going to win a massive majority. And if you came out of the last six months of Theresa May, I, I remember standing in the back of the room in Downing Street thinking, no chance, mate, absolutely no chance of any of those things happening. And, and they did. And, you know, he's a controversial character. Not everybody likes his well, methods, but he gets results. 
Well, I was going to say, I mean, you know, yes, strategic genius, I think is what you called him. You certainly clearly admire him. But what's he actually like personally to work with? Because that seems to be the issue with a lot of people. He, he doesn't, let's say, have a good, um, a good image in that department. He's quite a serious person. Um, you know sort of what he thinks. Um, he's very direct. Um, there's never any ambiguity in terms of what he wants, uh, which is really helpful, actually, because, I mean, look, I have a seven-year-old nephew. Um, he thrives when there are, is a goal and when there are boundaries. And um, for a lot of the time, uh, with the best will in the world, and there were some fantastic people who worked in the Theresa May administration, but for the last six months or so, there were, there were no boundaries and no goals. Um, and uh, then we had, you know, we had those uh, for the six months I worked with Dominic Cummings. And I think, you know, he deserves a lot of credit for that. Does he have too much power, though? And I feel like that was one of the big uh, criticisms that was floating around with the whole Durham debacle, uh, that somebody so high up yet unelected can survive something like that. Yeah, but there are lots of unelected people in this country who have a lot of power. I mean, there's a controversy at the moment about the number of permanent secretaries in, in Whitehall who have a lot of power. I mean, you know, if you're the prime minister, your right-hand man uh, has to be someone who um, you completely trust and has your entire authority to help you run the country and you know if you look at the white house for example which i know you cover uh, a lot on bloomberg obviously you've got um you know maybe four thousand people working in in uh, in the white house and in the old executive office building the prime minister in the united kingdom has maybe 40 special advisors in downing street maybe a hundred right but, across Whitehall who are political appointees and the rest are impartial so but but Peter, know, there is the, a lot the, of power definitely constantly well, there is, but isn't the issue in all this that we are a very different system from the American system? And here, historically, there's been a professionally appointed civil service who are supposed to be the people who do these jobs. I mean, isn't having spads really a bit of a perversion of that? No, um, actually, since the Northcote Trevelyan uh, reforms of, 80, of the 1850s, which uh, made the civil service impartial, uh, all prime ministers have had some form of outside help and personally appointed people, special advisors as we knew them, as I outlined in the book. There's a history chapter, and uh, they've, they've only really been around. It was Harold Wilson who properly brought them in in 1964. So, yes, of course, things have changed dramatically. Um, government wouldn't be the same without special advisors, but I think it's pretty reasonable for you know the democratically elected government of the country to have their own politically partisan people. And even though you know there, there are tens of thousands of civil servants, and there are you know, just around about 100 special advisors, so I think, I think that's healthy enough. And I think that's, that's perfectly reasonable, as, as is the case in many democracies in the world. Yes, of course, it's changed. Yes, it's different, but it's, it's evolved. And I think it's evolved for the better. All right. And what about the motivation, personally, for, for doing such a gruelling job? It, it's often seen as a stepping stone to elected office. What else is going to tempt you to take up the plate and do something like this? Oh, goodness, I, I wouldn't be an MP. Uh, it's, a, it's, you know, it's another fascinating job. I admire people from all political persuasions who are MPs. Uh, most of them, not all of them, but most of them are very good people who want to make a difference. And um, I very much am I'm with the... I remember when, when Joe Cox was tragically murdered, uh, that the, the, the sort of idea that people had more in common was, was very much there. And, you know, I have friends from right across the party, uh, some very good friends in the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats. Um, so, you know, it, it's... I think you've got to want to make things better. It, there's no point doing it for yourself. There's no point doing it for self-promotion. Uh, you've got to kind of want to help people. And um, there is certainly, like, like politicians, you know, all of them have an ego. You've got to sort of do that if you want to be on television and, and you want to be in the, in the chamber and making laws. And, you know, you've got to, you know, being elected, is, you've got to have a lot of self-confidence to, to go yeah. for election. 
Um, personally, that's not for me, but um, I, I had a great time. I really enjoyed it, and uh, right. I, I, I'm very grateful for, for the privilege yeah. of doing it. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.